Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by my old pals, Evan Grant and David Moore. David is back in his lovely home in Rockwall after a uh, horrendous, horrible uh, term in Oxnard where the temperatures not not ever got above uh, freezing, I don't think. At least not compared to here. David, what was that like when you got off the plane uh, from, uh, from California? Well, there's there's nothing more welcoming every year after training camp to step off the plane onto the jetway and to be greeted by that wall of heat that hits you the moment you step off the plane. It brings back uh, it brings back memories. I'm not sure I'd say fond memories, but it it lets you know that you are now back home. Yeah, you're back in Texas, pal. Uh, me, myself, I'm in, I'm in Arkansas, uh, on the lake here in in hot springs. It's, uh, it's been very pleasant the last two days. It is supposed to get back up into the nineties, but it's, uh, it was in the seventies and eighties, uh, yesterday. Very pleasant. Nice. Enjoyed it. We're having a good time. It is nice. Uh, so, uh, David, uh, anybody, since we're, wait, do we want the weather report from Walnut Creek? I mean, Evan is piping up. Oh, I love Walnut Creek. How is it there today? I mean, I, I, I feel I feel disrespected since you don't seem to want the weather from, from Walnut Creek here. No, we don't. We don't want the weather from Walnut Creek. But go ahead. I, here's one thing I, I like to point out to our, our listeners is that, you know, the only reason that Evan is in uh, covering the games in Oakland this week is because they're connected to the games in San Francisco. So, therefore, he can stay in San Francisco the entire week. Usually, whoever is the poor schlub that's backing up Evan gets all the trips to Oakland. I just, I just want to point that out here. Um, well, that was only true last year when our backup was originally from San Francisco, so he was able to go home to San Francisco. But that insult aside, it's 61 degrees here <laughs> in Walnut Creek where I am staying in the East Bay for the games against the A's to save money because I'm very much concerned about the long-term wealth and health of the Dallas news. And then I will move over to the other side of the Bay where it will be even cooler for the three games over the weekend against the giants. Thank you very much. And considerably more expensive, but please go ahead. Yeah. Yes, very much more expensive. <laughs> All right, thank you for that. Thank you for your sacrifice. Right. Yeah, I'm. Sure. I am, our, uh, I'm all about the team, baby. All about the team. Our, our West Base correspondent. All right, back to the Cowboys. We got to get David out of here. David's got things to do. We got We got to yeah. talk to David while he's still here. Yeah. Um, so, uh, David, to me, the mark of a good football team is when uh, people feel like they – I'm not saying that people are making up stuff, uh, but I'm, I'm saying that we're taking things that, that really don't seem to matter and trying to make something out of them. And that is the case, it seems to me, with the Cowboys. We had the story about the interceptions in practice uh, that Dak is throwing, which were not really inter- interceptions but free plays and stuff like that. Uh, and also about the trash talk. That was another one. Um, and uh, that's the two that I guess I'm thinking of. And then, of course, we've had since then uh, uh, 
the real stories of camp have been boring stuff like uh, kickers and trying to find another kicker. The Cowboys had the same problem in training camp last year and, re- and resorted to Brett Maher, who promptly went out and had a record-breaking season and would still be the Cowboys kicker if he hadn't melted down in the playoffs. Uh, but uh, anyway, so so back to the to the first part of that story, David. Uh, what what are the Cowboys going to do about their kicking, uh, and do you have any other concerns about them at this point? Well, they, um, you know, if you were, yeah, you alluded to it last year, the failed kicking competition in camp, and, and I used kicking competition loosely as a as a generic explanation. It wasn't much of a competition. But if you remember, the two kickers they brought into camp last year were both horrible. Uh, they ne- they were so bad, Dallas went outside and signed Maher right away. And, and the way this was shaping up in the first competitive kicking practice in front of, a, in front of fans, uh, both of these guys were missing over the weekend. So I, I think uh, because these scars of last year are still, are still fresh, they decided – it's not in the team's interest and it's not in the interest of these two kickers to subject them to this anymore. So they released Tristan Vizcaino and, and are going only with Brandon Aubrey right now uh, to see if they can uh, it, 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 to see if he is their kicker going into the season. If he does not improve on his consistency from what we've seen in this camp, they will go outside and bring in someone else. Uh, you know, Mason Crosby and Robbie Gould are, are the two veterans that you would go to and would uh, make people comfortable, fans comfortable. I, I think there's a concern with both of them on their age and just how strong their legs are um, and, you know, what the range of, uh, of reliability would be where they are in the, the stage of their careers. But they are consistent, proven kickers. And remember, the only reason Brett Maher is not back here is because he started missing extra points at the end of the regular season and the postseason. Uh, he was still very good on his field goals throughout the season up to the end uh, when he clearly, uh, you know, lost his rhythm. So I think I think they do want to install Brandon Aubrey as the guy, but they're not going to be bullheaded about it. Um, if they think he doesn't have it, I would say – Option one, if it's not Aubrey, is monitoring the kicking situations on the few other competitive teams around the league and whoever loses out on the competition, bringing that kicker in. And then choice B would go would be going to Crosby, who certainly uh, has a long history with uh, Mike McCarthy in Green Bay or Robbie Gould. Beyond that, um, I would be hard-pressed to point to a position to say where there's any sort of competition or unsettled uh, nature to it, which uh, in today's salary cap world is very, very rare. The one would be uh, this Zach Martin holdout at right guard. While I would still anticipate him being the right guard to open the season against the New York Giants in early September, um, it's starting, you know, it's starting the, the exit strategy on this is, is uh, a little bit more clouded than I think what it was going into training camp. All right, let me go back to this uh, this kicking thing real quickly here on Brett Maher. I got to tell you, I, I, I'm not good at managing kickers. You know, I, I I can't ever tell you, oh, 
you know, because we, we get recycled kickers all the time, right? The guy yeah. blows up somewhere, he, he goes to a new team, and all of a sudden he's great again. So who's to say what the right thing is to do with a kicker? I, I, I really don't know. I know we read last year that when, when Brett Maher was in the middle of all that, that, that back in the Jimmy Johnson days, he would have had him beheaded, you know, and, and that would have been <laughs> the end of it. Uh, uh, so I, I don't – well, that was an option with Jimmy. Yes. yes. Uh, and so I, I guess maybe that's – and so fans remember that. And so they, they think that, see, that's what Jimmy would have – he wouldn't have stuck with this guy. All I know is that Brett Maher made like, what, 39 of 42 field goals or something crazy like that. It's an unbelievable number. And I'm thinking maybe this was just a little, you know, bump in the road for him. I will ask this question. I have been not keeping up with him. Has he signed with anybody else, David? Uh, yeah, he signed, uh, and he will be kicking with uh, Denver, I believe, is who he wound up signing up with you, after they cut their long-time kicker. Well, you know what? That sounds – I don't think that's, uh, that, that does sound right. So, you know, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm betting that he'll, he'll do just fine for the Broncos. You know, I, I do think that obviously guys can get – you know, have problems just like golfers, you know, with their swings and things go wrong occasionally, and that's what you do. Uh, and, and I could see that being a problem. I just I kind of hate to see the Cowboys give up on a guy with a big leg who was very consistent last year uh, and, uh, and and you know it wasn't because of him that they lost that playoff game. Now missing a, a point after is is not good and, and I get that especially when they, he looked as bad as he did at that moment. But I don't know. Yeah. I would have I think I would have at least brought him back to camp and let him go through camp and see how he does. And if he did fine, then and here you go. And if he doesn't do fine, cut him and go with somebody else but you know what like i said what do i know about managing kickers uh well so, I, I do think it's very uh, quickly i do think it's the issue of like he missed four straight extra points <laughs> when you're going into the postseason right. uh, that's very difficult for a coaching staff and your teammates to feel good about um i mean the last thing you want to do is everyone you know holding their breath on extra points uh because in, in a close game that certainly can change the dynamic of how it plays out but but i will say this i agree with you from the standpoint that you know a lot of these guys you know, mahar is in denver now and, and you know there's a good chance he resurfaces and has another good season but it seems like every team in the league treats a kicker that way the moment he loses it it's like okay he's not going to get it back here let's let him go and move on and re- and, and i still think it shows how uh as specialized as this league has become and how good their scouting is, I still think they're farther behind the curve on kicking than you would anticipate. And I go back to how many draft picks are used on kickers and what is the relative importance of a kicker to number of games determined versus not using a draft pick on them. It's, uh, it's ridiculous. Now, there are reasons for that, for differences in the ball and the, and the college kicking game, and, and, and I get all that. But to me, that's the one area, uh, you know, when you look at the analytics, uh, why wouldn't you use a late round pick on a kicker every year if you don't have one? At least maybe even just to stash them on the practice squad to have them for a year and try to develop them when uh, a disproportionate number of games in this league are determined, are determined by three points or less. Well, I'm with you on that because obviously after after the fifth round, you're just drafting, you know, sixth and seventh round guys. These you're just taking flyers yeah. on people at that point. Why not? Uh, yeah. I'm with you on that because that was always the thing too. And Babe uh, Loffenberg, uh, I always like to bring up these these kind of theories that Babe uh, propounds, which are you know that you should you should be drafting a quarterback every year, and then you should also have 
a coach on the staff whose entire and only role is to be the quarterback, a real quarterback coach. I, I'm going to go out and find you a quarterback, and then I'm going to develop them. And that's and he doesn't have anything else to do on the team other than to do that, to go out and find them. Because if it's so important and you got to have one, then why don't you devote all of your resources, or not all of them, but, but that one particular resource just to that? To finding a quarterback and developing one, you know, because I I feel like they if you did have somebody like that, which I always thought that Cliff Kingsbury to me would be the ideal guy for that kind of role. I mean, look what he did in college, you know, uh, in, in finding quarterbacks. My gosh, he, he you know he put four quarterbacks in the pros and three of those guys he he cut from the roster. So you know I, I think that uh, that those those kind of things are very interesting and. and to do all right before you get out of here, David. Let's ask really quick about uh, the uh, the Zach Martin situation. So um, you still are you still pretty confident that he's just going to come back at some point? And then the Cowboys, I, I, I do feel like the Cowboys will have to make some kind of concession to him on this, don't you? Well, I don't see how it plays out any other way. I mean, the you know the fine at this point, I believe, is six hundred and fifty thousand dollars and counting. Uh, a fine that the Cowboys can't forgive under the new collective bargaining agreement like they could back in 2016 or 17 with uh, Ezekiel Elliott. Um, but now when you start getting to game checks and missed, you know, it's going to be one eighteenth of his $13.5 million salary this year. Then it really starts to add up quickly. He has two years left on his contract. Uh, so he has no leverage from that point. At this stage, the Cowboys are really operating from the stance of, well, what leverage does he have? He signed a contract in 2018 that put him at the top of the guard market and kept him there for two to three years. Now, is he well below the top of the guard market now? Yes, he is. He's about 7,000 behind the top two, and and by any uh, measure, Zach Martin deserves to be in the conversation among the top two to three guards in the NFL still. So now his pay is disproportionately low, but he was at the top of the scale early and the team is taking the stance. Well, you have two years left. You're in your thirties. You know, if we're going to do this, we're going to need, you know, maybe a slight extension and lower your, your number this year. And the question is, is he really willing to extend it? Which leads to, if he's not willing to extend it and he just wants it adjusted, is he telling the club he really only wants to play another couple of years, which does not help his leverage? So I just think there are a lot of moving parts and talking to both sides, uh, piecing things together. Um, I, I don't expect this to be resolved before training camp is done at this point. Well, that's very interesting, you know, and obviously they, they can't afford to lose him. He has been a, a rock in that offensive line. Uh, you know, I, I would I would go so far as to say as as good as Tyron Smith has been throughout his career, at least he was before he started getting hurt all the time. Uh, and Tyron was, certainly was very dominant early on. But um, but certainly Zach has been more consistent. He's been healthier, for one thing. Uh, I, I would say that Zach Martin is, might be the best offensive lineman the Cowboys have had since Larry Allen, wouldn't you? Yeah, I'd agree. And uh, again, I got to uh, run here. But yeah, I I would say I agree with you completely. He has helped while uh, Tyron Smith has been dominant, was the unquestioned best left tackle in the league for several years. You can say the same about Zach Martin at guard. And he has held up 
longer and is playing at a higher level at this stage of his career than Tyron Smith is. So, yes, I, I would say early in the conversation, you would have leaned toward Tyron Smith. But over these last two to three years, certainly uh, the pendulum has swung undeniably towards saying Zach Martin is the best offensive lineman of this generation. And uh, arguably, and uh, I don't even know how much of an argument is anymore, arguably the best since Larry Allen. Yeah. All right, David's got to get going. So uh, we appreciate it, David. Thanks for being with us. And uh, we'll, we'll check you next week. Thank you, guys. Look forward to it. So, Evan, you're out on the West Coast. Uh, you taking a beaten-up, banged-up team out there with you uh, to play Oakland and the Giants. Uh, Josh Young is out. Uh, and, and, I, you know, I'm on the road here. I'm trying to keep up best I can out here in the hinterlands of Arkansas. Uh, but did Josh Young have surgery uh, or is he having surgery for that thumb? Is something going to happen here that's going to enable him to to play before October, if at all? Or is that just a standard operating procedure? Uh, yeah, the plan is for him to have surgery on Wednesday. Uh, that was the tentative plan after he had seen um, hand specialist Don Sheridan in Arizona, who apparently is now giving the Rangers group rate, since he also saw Jonah Heim on his wrist. Um, wow. That that thumb fracture, it's got to be, uh, for lack of a better term, it's kind of got to be tacked down. The bone's got to be uh, aided a little bit, I think, with a pin inserted. Uh, and it's, it's it's a six-weeks injury. Um, Bruce Bochy said it's probably going to be six l- last night. Um, may he, he said maybe a little less than that. I would, I would plan on six weeks. There are eight weeks left in the regular season. Uh, and I did ask Mochi to, to just clarify, and did that mean that he expects Young back before the end of the regular season definitively? And he said, yes, I expect him to play before the end of the regular season. So um, I, I, I toyed with how to how to write this, and I, you know, I, I don't want to say, look, it confirmed their fears because I think everybody thought it was a very strong possibility that um, – that he was going to end up needing a surgical repair on this. I don't want to say that it's a worst case scenario because it could be far worse. Uh, but the bottom line is the Rangers are, you know, without, without three all-stars on their active roster right now and young Jonah Heim, uh, who is making some progress and in Nathan Yavaldi and they've been without, Four, four all-stars at some point due to an injured list assignment since the all-star break. So um, this is a lot of adversity and it's it's something they're going to have to deal with and they're going to have to find a way to win. And what I pointed out in my column last night was, look, the Astros went without Jose Altuve and Jordan Alvarez, both of whom were all-stars last year both of whom were elite players. They went with them for about three weeks without them together for about three weeks in July. They managed to go nine and six, and that included winning a series over the Rangers. So there's no sympathy or empathy from anybody. Um, The Rangers have to figure out a way to, to battle. And last night, you know, against an Oakland team, they came back from a three, nothing deficit, uh, won a game that they trailed after six innings uh, for, um, I think only the fourth time this year. So uh, they did do some things necessary to win a game. And, 
did them in a different way, right? You know, we uh, I don't know if you watched the game last night or if you were out on the back porch smoking your corncob pipe or what it is you do up there, but um, he, uh, he Bruce Bochy used a bunt with Ezekiel Duran, uh, his replacement third baseman. Uh, Zeke has been struggling, but he did get a bunt down, the first of his major or minor league career to advance the go-ahead run to third base, and then the go-ahead run scored on a ground ball up the middle that didn't get through the infield on a contact play by uh, Travis Jankowski, and it scored Jonathan Ornelas, who had made his major league debut earlier in that inning as a pinch runner. So the Rangers made the best use out of the uh, out of the Josh Young replacement situation, at least last night. Uh, thanks for that uh, that recap, there, Evan. Yeah. Uh, well, listen. Well, I don't know what say- I, I don't know what technology you have in in um, in Arkansas. Well, we, don't have, we can't we don't, see you. Well, um, I don't know. The, the TV's not you know the TV's not a big thing here. I don't think uh, so uh, in Arkansas. Uh, so no, I did not get to see that. But uh, let me say this about that: two things. One, and I don't know why. I don't know what it is you got against Mitch Garver. You. Re- Refused to write about Mitch Garver and talk about the success that he has had in filling in. The guy got three hits last night, my God. And he got, I think he rated one line in your in your column, which was something like piss ant, Mitch Garver got a hit. So big deal. And then you went on from there. Uh, well, I, I will say this on Mitch Garver. I um, Since I was off over the weekend and so much happened behind the plate, um, I thought I'd give it a rest on Mitch Garver coverage, but he has, without a doubt, um, done all that could be asked in terms of replacing Jonah Hahn behind the plate. I think he's hitting 400 over the last week, and it just backs up what Mitch has always said, that he is a much different player when he is able to catch regularly behind the plate. He, he's been an offensive force behind the pl- from behind the plate. Yeah, he is. Uh, and, um, and when he gets to play every day, I think it does make a difference, you know, and, and that's the course that was the issue when Jonah was here. Well, you, you'd rather have Jonah back there. And I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, but Mitch has been very good. And, and it, it, it does speak to a lot of things about the Rangers this year. Uh, one of them being that, you know, as we all know, catching is at a, a, a premium uh, across the league because no one's got a good catcher. The Rangers have two. Uh, and, uh, that's, that's pretty remarkable. And with everything that's happened to this team this year, with all of these injuries and, and, and you of course side the ones by the Astros and, and, uh, and that was a great point to make about the fact that they went nine to six without those two guys. Um, and, but the, but the Astros are the reigning world champions. And that is a, a it is the team of the last six or seven years, no matter what you think about the cheating and all the rest of it, they are, they are still, uh, they are the, the number one team of the last, you know, half decade or so. So when you can measure yourself against that, when you are holding that team off and you're having just as many problems as they're having, you know, it's not like the, the Rangers got really lucky here and, and all these guys perform really well and no one got hurt and they're pitching, the rotation held up, you know, the rotation fell apart. Guys got hurt. Guys didn't perform well. Chris Young goes out and gets more pitching. You know, it's 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 kind of like, you know, uh, w- what else do you want the Rangers to do this year uh, to, to prove that they are a team to be reckoned with? Listen, I, I think the thing that, that needs to be said is what a good job they've done depth-wise. Um, 
because when they did need to replace an all-star shortstop, Zeke Duran went over to short. Now his offense struggled a little bit, and it has, and it's not to be, it's not terribly surprising for a young player, but he played a remarkably good shortstop. Uh, they lose an all-star third baseman and a potential rookie of the year, and they've got guys that they can plug in. The depth, the depth plays, and probably nowhere does it speak louder than the way that Garver has has stepped in um, and really picked up his offense at, at, at catcher. So I think um, in terms of the, I, I don't know exactly how to weigh this because you know I think there's been some wonky problems at the end of the forty man roster, but I do think the the central construct of the roster where the um, uh, where the position players are concerned, they've done a really good job of having versatile guys uh, who can play multiple positions and who have been effective offensively. Uh, all around the diamond, whether you're talking about the signing of Travis Jankowski, um, whether you're talking about how they've used Mitch Garver, whether you're talking about Ezekiel Duran, or even to some extent Josh Smith, they have done a good job of putting together a deep team. And that's really the uh, pitching and, and depth are what are going to get you through, you know, the, the war of attrition that is a major league season. Let me ask you this about the decision to bring up Jonathan Ornelas, uh, Ornelas uh, to replace uh, Josh Young on the roster. Yep. Um, you know, I don't want to make myself sound like an expert because I saw two games at Round Rock, uh, but I did get to see those guys play a little bit. And Davis Wenzel is not having a, a great offensive year. It's it's, it's okay. Uh, he's doing all right that offensively. But I got to tell you, I was really impressed with him as a third baseman. Uh, really liked the arm. Got a great arm. Uh, really knows what he's doing over there. Why wouldn't you have brought him up instead of Ornelas? Well, first of all, Ornelas is on the forty man, and that's just an easy move. You can bring him okay. up. You don't have to DFA anybody. You don't have to make any any final moves. Um, secondly, I, I think that the Rangers uh, look. Ornelas was the defender of the year in the system last year. He is he is considered the best advanced level defender. Wenzel is having a good, a better year this year, though offensively, um, well, look, he's hitting for more power than Jonathan is. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but Davis has kind of tailed off a little bit here in the last month as well. Um, I just think when it comes down to it, you've got you've got a guy that you're looking to come up and play defense. You're not going to replace the offense. You, you just aren't. Um, and there are holes in, in Davis Wenzel's swing as well. Uh, so you're looking for defense. Um, also, you know, they used Jonathan to pinch run last night instead of Josh Smith, and were able to keep Josh Smith on the bench uh, for extra versatility if they needed it late. And so I think they like that aspect of Ornelas's game. Uh, it just was an easier, simpler move than, than trying to get complicated and potentially losing a body. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I should have known that 40-man roster thing was the reason why. <laughs> Um, yeah, that makes perfect sense. I, I just, I did think that, uh, you know, I, I, I'm always intoxicated by a big arm at third base. Uh, I just, I like seeing that. I like a guy that, that when he turns and makes that throw to, to first base, you, you know, he's going to get that guy. Uh, even at, even Josh, as well as he's played, 
it doesn't have a he doesn't have a great arm. He has, he has kind of a, a funky release. Uh, it's, it's really wristy to me. He's very accurate, and that's and that's the good thing. That's what matters. And certainly he's played very well over there. But uh, uh, Wenzel does have the better arm of the, of the two of those guys. So I'm always kind of intrigued by that. All right, so Evan, uh, at this point here on the in the roster and what's happening and how the bullpen is developing, I want to ask you about what do you see as kind of uh, you obviously we see, we see the pattern of, of what Aroldis Chapman and Will Smith are doing in the eighth and ninth, and it, it seems like Josh Spores has the seventh inning. Is Stratton coming in, and is he looking like the guy that's like maybe the fifth, sixth inning that that kind of thing? Is that the role that you see playing out for him? I mean, I, I think, Kevin, you know, when you're talking about a team that that is hoping to win three out of four games down the stretch, um, you're going to get into situations where you've got multiple nights where you've got to you've got to carry a lead through the seventh. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think Stratton would be if you if you've got to go multi innings, if you've got to cover the sixth and maybe the seventh, um, Stratton would be the first choice. If you're looking simply for the seventh right now, I think Josh Spores is the first choice. And if you can manage that, um, then most nights he's going to be able to pitch for you. And then, you know, you your plan right now looks like Chapman in the eighth and, and Smith in the ninth. And um, if you are getting quality starts from your rotation, and the Rangers have gotten that again with after after some real bumps in the road, uh, if you're getting that, the bullpen sets up a lot better, and that was a big part of what Chris Young was trying to do when he made all those trades at the at the deadline was get some more length in the rotation and therefore able to take some of the more unproven, questionable pieces out of play in the bullpen. Um, and you, so now you've got Spores and you've got Stratton from the right side for the sixth or the seventh. Uh, you've got Brock Burke. Uh, if you want to, if, if you've got a left-handed heavy lineup coming up, uh, it gives you, it gives you some more stable options. And listen, I, I think that there was, I, I don't think the Stratton edition excited a ton of people, but I do think that, um, it was something that, that Chris Young really had in mind because I think that Bruce Bochy's familiar with them. I think they've had a good working relationship, um, I think they liked his peripherals and, you know, Mike, Young, Mike Maddox worked with Stratton as well last year. And so I think that familiarity, I, I cannot emphasize, and I know we talked a little bit about this last week, but I can't emphasize enough the aspect of familiarity for the pitching coach and the manager with these pitchers, because it really cuts down on the adjustment time of a guy coming in on the fly to a new team. Maddox has worked with all three of these guys. Um, Bochy had worked with Stratton. I think it just made a lot of it made a lot of sense on a lot of fronts, and we we've seen immediate impressive results uh, from all three. Yeah, and you know, and doesn't that speak to the, the, to the from the standpoint that you really need to have a veteran pitching coach? You probably need to have a veteran manager for that matter. You know, uh, this is working phenomenally well this year for the Rangers, and Mike Maddox obviously worked very well for them when they had him before. Um, you know, when you have a, uh, I think it, it makes perfect sense what you just said. It, you, you bring in a pitcher at the deadline. This is a pitching coach this guy's never seen before, and especially a Max Scherzer. I'd hate to run some rookie pitching coach out there with Max Scherzer, wouldn't you? I'm afraid he'd strangle him. 
Yeah, you, you know, I, I I think that in most cases that would be that would be true. Look, Mike Maddox is is going to go down as one of the great pitching coaches of the 21st century, and um, he's worked with a lot of guys. He's got a very particular way that he does things. He spends an enormous amount of time in terms of prep to put together a very simple scouting report for the starting pitchers. And 99% of pitchers will tell you, like Max Scherzer did when he came in here um, and was asked about Mike Maddox, he said, look, the scouting reports are the best I've ever had. It's really easy. They're really easy to grasp, and they're a real asset. And I think everything you can do as a pitching coach to take um, the stress uh, or anxiety of of prep and performance out of the pitcher's mind. Um, anything you can do on that front is going to improve your chances for getting a successful start. And Mike knows all that. He knows all that from 20 years of experience. And and yeah, it, 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 it does make a difference. I, I don't want to, I don't want to say that a rookie pitching coach couldn't do the job, but I mean, it, it, it has to be a special rookie pitching coach. And yeah. what you've got in Mike Maddox is a special veteran pitching coach. So, um, I, I I think this again is one of those situations where Chris Young, having played the game, uh, understands value and chemistry of players maybe better than a non-baseball executive who doesn't quite get all the um, X factors that can go into performance. Yeah, I think that's right. All right, so let me ask you about two things specifically then. Uh, One of them is that obviously we saw the ramp up in uh, uh, quality of pitching in Andrew Heaney after the trade deadline, and Dane Dunning pitched well, and, uh, and of course, Martin Perez is out of the rotation now. Uh, First of all, I want to ask you about that real quickly. Have you been able to talk to Martin about how he feels about uh, being in the bullpen? Um, again, I, I wasn't, I wasn't around over the weekend. And, and so yesterday my focus was spent primarily on the third base situation. Um, and Martin spent a lot of time in the stands talking with, uh, a friend pregame last yesterday. It, it is on my list of things to check in. I'm sure he is, I'm sure he is bummed and I'm sure it's disappointing coming off of an all-star year. Uh, but he's also got a chance to do something he's he's never done before, and that's win a World Series. Uh, and I think he understands it. Look, this is it's a performance based industry, and right now, you know, the performance of the other guys was was better than his. Yeah, there's no question about that. Uh, and and listen, I've been one of uh, you know uh, Martin's biggest you know. Uh, proponents you know I, I i thought last year it was like it was a no-brainer to give him a multi-year contract and now chris young is is proving right wrong that uh you know that no they, they needed to be more careful about that and what they were going to give him and uh and i guess that goes back to the point you were making about what chris young sees as a general manager uh it's been pretty phenomenal so far so second thing uh about uh these guys do you believe it's possible when a team goes out and, and adds two pitchers to the rotation like that, that all of a sudden these guys actually are, that that is making a difference, that the fact that I might be getting pushed out of this rotation. I mean, 
from a from a fan standpoint watching that, that has to make you a little mad, doesn't it? I mean, you have to say, well, my gosh, this guy's getting paid a lot of money. Why wasn't he doing well before they made that? And so they wouldn't have had to make this trade. And now he goes out and now he's pitching well, so they've gone out and got some competition. Oh, I, I mean, I, I think that um... – Listen, I think competition is always a good thing, and it's something that you can't uh, you can't ever really quantify on how it impacts things. But certainly, just from the looks of things, it looks like uh, the idea that hey, nothing is guaranteed here anymore uh, had some kind of impact. And I think all the Rangers are thankful for at this point in time is that it's had a positive, it, it has had a positive impact. They, you know, they just want results, man. And I, I don't think that this is a question of whether or not Andrew Heaney or Martin Perez or Dane Dunning had gotten lazy. I do just think, you know, when the expectations get raised yet another notch and when the stakes rise even higher, Guys who are ultimate competitors find another gear, and that I think is what we've seen from 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 initial from the initial kind of uh, impact of these of these trades. But there's still eight weeks left in the season, right? There's still a good ten or eleven starts for each of these guys, and we'll see how consistent it can be over the stretch. But the first in, the first impressions have been have been good. Well, look, all right, I, I think we're running out of time here, uh, but I do want to ask you this because somebody ran this past me. Uh, I guess a reader did, and uh, and, I, and it makes perfect sense to me for the rest of the season and going into the playoffs, which we think will almost surely be playoffs. Is do you go to a six man rotation here, Evan? Do you do you do you do this and kind of keep these guys fresh going into the playoffs, and and then you get to also make the decision about who's the Who's got the hot hand here? And and then we're ready to go with that uh, when playoff time comes. Um, uh, my, uh, look, you're you're not going to get Uvalde back to the latter half of, of August if then. Um, I uh, There may be some situations where maybe they do go to a six-man rotation uh, to get guys a little bit of extra rest, but I think there's also a handful of off days in September – I, I think ultimately you're not going to change too much. And when you get to the playoffs, you're going to end up with a four-man rotation rather than a six-man rotation. So um, uh, if you can start to transition a guy to the bullpen and get him ready for a role that he's going to serve in, in the postseason, there may be some benefit to that too. Uh, I think to answer your question without answering your question, I think it's worth considering, Kevin, but I also think that – that the Rangers look the best the the best case scenario here is that the Rangers have options to pursue to pursue if they feel like they need to put um, Uvalde on a limited pitch count maybe you want to have somebody piggybacking with him who can give it give you multiple innings so you kind of you go you back Uvalde you back the the right hander Uvalde maybe with a left hander like like Andrew Heaney for a turn through the rotation. Uh, through a turn through the lineup there there's any number of ways they can go here you know I got I got a question last night um it's not quite the same thing but I got a question last night about hey the way a Chapman is pitching uh are the Rangers thinking about bringing him back for 24 
and, and my answer, and I'm not sure I wasn't trying to be a smart ass with the guy or anything is like, listen, it's an intriguing discussion, but it is in no way, shape or form on the horizon right now. The Rangers are focused on trying to put as much distance between them and the Astros as they possibly can. And so everything is about 23. And so when they get to a point where Nathan Uvalde is ready to get back on a mound, throw bullpens, and get close to, to starting, they will evaluate where everybody is. And as, we, as we've as we said before, right, this stuff can change very quickly. If, if, if Heaney or Dunning goes out and has two clunkers back-to-back, then all of a sudden the perspective has changed. Oh, well, one of those guys has to go to the bullpen. So I think the Rangers – uh, juggle everything. I think everything is fluid, and I think the best thing that a team like them can have at this point is options. And when Nathan Uvalde comes back, it's going to give them exactly that. You know, it's it's a funny thing because you you know we get caught up in the moment uh, about what's happening right now, and we forget about the things that happened before the season. And of course, the big question going into the season was, okay, yeah, you went out and you you cobbled together this great pitching staff, but all these guys have had injury problems. And so, you know, what are the, you know, what are the chances here? So let's just see what, what happens and all of that. Well, that exactly what happened. They all got hurt. Right. Uh, yep. And, and yet the Rangers are still in first place. They went out and got two more starting pitchers. You know, it, it kind of, uh, it's an interesting time to be a Rangers fan. I think from the standpoint that before you know, even the even the World Series teams that were very well put together, and uh, and those were extremely talented rosters. They were very fortunate. In one of those World Series trips, and where they they had almost no injuries in their yep. uh, in their starting rotation. Uh, this team is not playing by those same rules. You know, this organization is no longer playing by those sets of rules. It is like we're going after it. If somebody gets hurt. Get them out of the way. We're bringing in somebody else here to fill in for them. I, I just this is a time that we have never experienced before, in and certainly in my thirty eight years in the market, I've never seen anything like this, and I'm pretty sure that nothing like this ever happened before that. Well, just remember, you know, in two thousand ten, um, the Rangers were technically bankrupt, um, so they didn't have a whole lot of financial flexibility. Still, were able to pull off the Cliff Lee deal. But they didn't have a whole lot of financial flexibility. The, the I, I think where I'm getting at with this is after six years of losing um, and building the farm system back up and Ray Davis deciding that he is willing to go to levels that this club has never even come close to approaching before in terms of payroll, when you've got that financial flexibility and that kind of depth in in the farm system, you can make unprecedented things happen and uh, add in motivation. And look, there's always motivation here, but the Rangers went through a very successful period from 2009 through 2016, really. Um, And it's been a dry spell here. So there's the motivation of getting back to where they were. And I think all of that has played a role in first going out and spending the kind of money that they did on pitching in the off season. Um, and secondly, going out and spending the kind of capital that they needed to do in terms of uh, in terms of prospects to say, look, we are on the verge of something here. We we are not going to let this opportunity get away from us, if at all possible. Um, and, and so there's, I, I think, I think there's credit due throughout the organization um, to ownership for stepping up to 
Chris Young for being bold and saying we're not going to take anything for granted, um, and really for the obviously for the performance of the players. Yeah, no question about that. It's just a perfect storm of events here, uh, which I guess you know after the long drought uh, here for this organization, it, maybe maybe they, we were due for a perfect storm. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it just it just feels funny uh, to after all these years and this and it's it's not like this wasn't a big market it was it was kind of a, a situation where uh, Rangers fans deserved better ownership for one thing um, and because this is a market where you can make some money uh, I think when Ray Davis we talk about him making money off of all of this but look when you're going to get all of a sudden 30 and 35,000 fans out there every night uh, then you're going to make a lot more money uh, and, and things are going to go a lot better for you if you're putting the product on the field. Uh, and, and, and certainly these fans have responded to that. You know, I grew up in Houston and I, and I know all about Astros fans, but I also know about that period where, when they were bad, where they completely deserted that franchise and they didn't even come back to the ballpark for a long time after their Astros were good again. These fans here to me have showed that, uh, they're ready to come back. This is the first year they've been good. And we're already starting to see those kind of crowds out at the ballpark on a fairly consistent basis. So uh, this is this is a good market for a baseball franchise. And uh, I think that they're finally getting the entire organization that that it deserves. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I'm, it's still a Cowboys town. Josh Hamilton was right. It's not a baseball town, but it's not a bad baseball town uh, either. And, and I think that that's, that's finally starting to come around. Evan, do you have I, any closing thoughts? I, I can't disagree with you on any of that, Kevin. I, I just do think that right now the Rangers have – they've got – your words were the perfect storm. They've got a new facility um, that also gives fans more comfort than they've ever had before, and so it doesn't make it as much of a um, – as much torture uh, to go out to the ballpark as it was. They've got ownership that has – look, for two years now, has stepped up and – and improve this club with high-priced free agents and not being outbid or outglitzed by anybody. They've reinforced this team with trades, and you know they they've put in place. It can't be overstated. They've put in place a manager who, in large parts, is the everyday face of this organization, who has won before. They've never had that. They've never had a guy who was sitting in the dugout with World Series rings. And I think that builds that builds a level of trust with his players. It builds a level of trust with ownership and with management. And it builds a level of trust with fans. And, and so I, I, I just think this organization is in very good position right now and in very good hands. And it's not – this is not to say that um, – Anybody that came prior in terms of ownership or 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 GMs or players didn't didn't make contributions, but I think everything has aligned in a really good um, dynamic for the for the Rangers for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's a great point, and I, certainly the, the point about Bochi, I, you can't undersell that either. Uh, that, that, that's just all of it, you know. That, that's a lot to, to happen, and, and and to your last point. A lot of these general managers have always operated with one arm tied behind their back, uh, yep. and that and that's and that's you know and John Daniels counts as one of those. You know, I know that he's not a popular figure among fans, especially with all the success that Chris has had. Uh, 
so people say, well, look, see that they just had to get rid of John Daniels. Well, a lot of that team is the team that John Daniels put together. Uh, and so uh, John Daniels, John Daniels deserves a lot of credit for um, the organization that he built. A lot of people who are still in the organization were hired by John Daniels. A lot of the players that were acquired here were acquired by John Daniels. I, I think it's silly for fans to try and say good guy, bad guy. Um, John Daniels, until the Rangers win a World Series, John Daniels is hands down the best and most successful general manager in this franchise's history. Yeah, no question about that. All right, that's going to do it for our podcast this week. We thank you for tuning in. We'll be back next week for more, uh, and we'll be able to talk about uh, where the Rangers are at that point as they put any more distance between themselves and the Astros. Uh, it's going to be a great uh, pennant race here going down to the wire, I think. I don't see this thing. I don't see either team pulling away. I, I would imagine it would be more than two or three games uh, separation between them for the rest of this season. So for everybody, oh, I would just encourage. I would the last thing I would say. I would encourage people Labor Day weekend. Maybe extend your Labor Day weekend into Tuesday and Wednesday. Those three games against the Astros, September fourth, fifth, and sixth in Arlington, are going to be, I would say, the best in the entire uh, rivalry of this of of these two franchises. So that should be it. Should be exciting. Yeah, there's no question that rivalry has arrived. Uh, uh, You know, we for years you know, laughed about it, made fun of it in the silver boot and John Blake breaking the silver boot in the back of his trunk, uh, you know, just kind of was a joke uh, for all that time. Well, it's a it's a full on rivalry now. Uh, this is to me, I, I would expect because I don't think the Astros are really going anywhere for the next two or three or four years. And, and, I, and I don't think the Rangers are either. I, I fully expect this to become uh, at least the intensity of the rivalry. It doesn't have the history that all the great ones do, the Red Sox, the Yankees, and the Dodgers and the Giants and, you know, and the Cubs and the Cardinals and all that. doesn't have that kind of history, but uh, it will rival in, in intensity any other one in baseball, I believe, over the next half decade or so. So we'll see how that, that turns out. All right, so from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>